I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look at newspaper headlines and articles from important dates in history, and then I look behind those articles and headlines and tell you what else was going on around the country and world on the exact same day. Many of you celebrated Christmas this past week, and today's famous event is something that happened around Christmas time back in 1944. A couple of weeks ago, our famous date was unique because it was the day newspapers reported that Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had climbed Mount Everest. Even though the date they actually climbed it was a few days before newspapers printed this story, since they had to wait for the men to come down the mountain and then wait for the information to be relayed to the media. Today's famous date is a similar situation. It's a bit obscure now, and a lot of you won't know anything about it, but at the time, it was a really big deal. This event is about a famous person who disappeared on December 15, 1944, but it wasn't reported in newspapers for nine days. I couldn't find any mention of it until Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1944. And for fans of this person, it must have been a really rotten thing to read right before they celebrated one of the biggest holidays of the year. Do you have any guesses about who disappeared yet? I'll give you a hint. The man that disappeared was a top-selling, chart-topping musician. I'm taking our famous headline today from the Christmas Eve 1944 edition of the Des Moines Register out of Iowa. It says, Glenn Miller listed missing. Glenn Miller was a big band leader who was ultra popular in the 1930s and 40s. Although his name probably isn't familiar to everyone, Glenn Miller, a great trombonist and his orchestra are still heard on occasion nowadays. Back in the height of his popularity, Glenn even had his own radio show that started with the Andrews Sisters, another famous group from that time, and continued on without them when the Andrews sisters' contract ended. Glenn and his music were featured in multiple movies while he was alive, and I still hear it from time to time in movies today. So, just how popular was Glenn Miller and his orchestra? Well, from the late 30s to the time of his disappearance, Glenn Miller and his orchestra had more number one records and top ten hits than Elvis Presley and the Beatles had during their careers. One of his recordings that sat on the Billboard charts for 13 weeks was the inspiration for a song two of my characters danced to in a book I wrote called A Little Bit of Luck. I never actually named the song in that book, but in my head I was humming Glenn Miller's version of Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anyone Else But Me the entire time I wrote that scene. I'll share that song in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group along with another favorite that I'm positive all of you would recognize if you heard it, called In the Mood. Anyway, in 1942, when Glenn Miller was at the peak of his career, he decided to get involved with the war effort, and he joined the United States Air Force. He headed overseas to lead a military band and entertain the troops. He kind of became the face of the war in some aspects, and his efforts helped to raise the morale of the troops, and was seen as a good thing by many people. During his time in the army, he also participated in anti-Nazi propaganda campaigns. 
Sadly, though, that brings us to the headline of the day. Glenn Miller listed missing. He'd been on a flight from England to Paris to perform for troops there when his plane disappeared somewhere over the English Channel. Over the years, there have been conspiracy theories about what happened, including the idea that his plane was shot down by friendly fire or targeted because of his celebrity status. But ultimately, I think the plane's disappearance is blamed on bad weather. It has been 76 years since Glenn Miller disappeared, and no sign of his plane has ever been found. His body was never recovered. Now, the life and career of Glenn Miller is interesting, and I could easily fill an entire podcast episode about him. But as you know, this podcast isn't about the events that made history at the time. It's not about the events that everyone was talking about. So, let's open some newspapers from December 24th, 1944, and find out what else was going on with the greatest generation the day they were told Glenn Miller wasn't coming back. As I looked through newspapers for interesting additional history stories, I struggled to find any articles at all that didn't have to do with the war in some way. Dozens and dozens and dozens of headlines talked about the enemies, the allies, the battles, the troops leaving, the troops coming back, and the local soldiers who were killed in action or missing. Just to be clear, I have nothing against talking about the war, and I'm fascinated with it, but I wanted to go for something extra unique for that day. Something that said life existed beyond the battlefield and airplane factories. For example, newspapers of times past were more gossipy than the tabloids we see in grocery store lines in these modern days. Anything you did, anywhere you went, anyone you talked to was fair game to put in newspapers no matter how insignificant you were. This was especially a big deal in small-town newspapers. I found one paper that had a huge list of everyone in town that would be leaving for the holidays, where they were going, and how long they would be gone. Basically, for anyone wanting to burglarize homes, it was a list of all the places that would be free game over the next week or two. Times were different. Ultimately, after much searching, I decided to talk about a war-related article that I saw covered in quite a few papers. This particular headline comes from the Tampa Bay Times. It says, Hundreds of U.S. soldiers held in Paris on charges of stealing army supplies. Sadly, the article is as bad as the headline sounds. Times were tough back then, and supplies weren't that easy to come by. Unless you were in the military, and the United States government was supplying you with everything you needed. Some troops decided to take advantage of this and sell goods they stole from the military bases and convoys, and sell them on the French black market. According to the article, thousands of gallons of gasoline were being stolen every single day. A Colonel Burmaster said that, quote, This place is getting to be like Chicago in the days of Al Capone. They hijack trucks right off the road. They drive a car between the last couple of trucks and a convoy. Stick a gun in the driver's belly and tell him to vamoose. Colonel Burmaster went on to explain how the truck and gasoline and supplies in the truck were all sold on the black market. Unfortunately, the U.S. troops and civilians, too, who had never done anything wrong in their life, had never been in trouble with the police or even on their radar, were suddenly finding themselves in a heap of trouble because they saw how easy it was to make money. One soldier started doing it and didn't get caught, so another would try, and then another, and another. These men started sending money home by the thousands. 
One soldier reported that in just a short amount of time, he'd sent home $36,000. That's a lot of money, but if you put it into today's value, it would be like the soldier sent home over half a million dollars. That case was probably the exception, but still, most soldiers were making today's equivalent of $30,000 a week by selling stuff on the French black market. The United States wanted France to crack down on the black market, and they did. But by cracking down, it also meant that many Americans were arrested. At the time this article was written, around 1,500 men were being held on charges of misappropriation of government property. Now, gasoline wasn't the only hot commodity. One of the biggest draws were supplies that some would say are basic necessities of living, like soap and cigarettes. Between the week of December 14th and December 21st, authorities recovered nearly 42,000 packs of cigarettes and well over 2,000 five-gallon buckets full of gasoline. Once the government started cracking down on the behavior, the stealing was reduced by quite a bit. But that didn't mean those involved were let go. At least two American men were sentenced to life in a French prison for their role in the scheme. That made the U.S. government pretty angry because the man they'd been selling the items to in France didn't get a prison sentence and was instead given a $26 fine, the equivalent of less than $400 today. Not exactly fair and equal treatment. The French agreed that from that time forward, all the trials would go through the French military tribunal. I hope those soldiers learn their lesson quickly. For my next additional history story of the day, I have an interesting tell that actually doesn't have anything to do with the war. It will make you laugh and shake your head in dismay. I found this article in the Chicago Tribune from December 24, 1944. The headline reads, CIO Picket Mob Invades Wards, Scatters Stock. The day before, in Royal Oaks, Michigan, a mob of CIO pickets had invaded the Montgomery Ward store in that town. I wasn't exactly sure what CIO stood for, but I figured it must be a union of some sort even though I didn't know who they represented. So I did what I usually do and I looked it up. For those of you who don't know, CIO stands for Congress of Industrial Organizations. Once I started reading about it, I realized I had heard of it before, but under a slightly different name. I am not going to bore you with all those details though. Basically all you need to know is that the CIO was formed in 1935 by eight other international labor unions. It was around for about 20 years and then disbanded in 1955. Okay, so on December 23rd, a mob of picketers decided to take their protest from outside the Montgomery Ward department store to inside the store. It was actually the second time the group had disturbed the store that week. The first time the picketers went in, three employees were injured, customers were mistreated, and the doors were barricaded. The second time it happened, 50 picketers entered the store and spread themselves out messing up merchandise and harassing employees. They jammed up the aisles and sang Christmas carols and then ganged up on the clerks. Here's the part where I said you'd laugh. I'm going to read it to you straight from the article. It says, They tried on clothing obviously too small for them, flexing their muscles in attempts to rip off the garments. I'm sorry, but it sounds like something my teenage boys would do. At home, of course. Anyway, the clerks reported that the mob left clothing piled in heaps around the store, and they turned all of the coats inside out. 
Later, the article says, quote, one husky picket specialized in picking underwear up from the counter and stretching it violently. Friends, as unrealistic and childish as this sounds, I promise I am not making this up. Now you might be asking yourself why they were doing this. What point did it serve? Well, they figured if they monopolized the clerk's time and crowded the store, paying customers would get angry and leave, and Montgomery Ward wouldn't have any cells. Next, some of the picketers went to the sports department and bought themselves baseball bats. Yes, they bought the baseball bats, they didn't steal them, but the cops were called and 20 state policemen arrived to break up the mob before any damage was done with the bats. Nobody was arrested and the store went on with business as usual after everyone was kicked out. The next day, Christmas Eve, the store manager made sure 160 of his 200 employees were on duty, just in case the picketers came back for a third time. But as of the time the newspaper was printed, all was well. For my last additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Kansas City Star out of Missouri. This is another war story. The headline says, Christmas on a cruise ship, hot and hurried, but merry. I'm cheating a little on this story because although it was printed in the December 24th, 1944 newspaper, it was actually about a story from the previous Christmas as told by a Kansas City interior decorator named Adlin Muller. Adlin had been serving with the Red Cross in India for a year, and it was time for her and other Red Cross gals, as they were called in the article, to return to the United States. Those on board had hoped to be home for Christmas, but it wasn't to be. The ship should have arrived home in time for the Christmas holiday of 1943, but a problem with the ship's boiler set their sailing date back a week, and that meant they wouldn't be home for Christmas. The seven-week journey home would be finished after the Christmas holiday had come and gone. Now, sailors in times of old, and even some nowadays, are very superstitious. They believed that having a woman on the ship was bad luck, and the seas would react by sending storms and rough seas. So the fact that 50 Red Cross gals were on the military ship for seven weeks already had the captain and troops a bit unsettled. But for them to be there for a holiday that couldn't really be celebrated on a ship made it even worse. Adlin said, Seven weeks of feminine chatter and laughter floating in the captain's cabin portholes must have caused more furrows in his brow than the apprehensive search for submarines. Adlin said that the ship was due to arrive in port on December 26th, but she didn't actually say which port, so I'm not sure if the 26th was the end of their journey and they'd be back in the United States, or if it was just a stop somewhere along the way. Either way, the weather had been unbearably hot in India, and most of those on board had never experienced heat like that. There would be no white Christmas for anyone that year. But as the holiday got closer and closer, the captain weakened and made an announcement during the daily bulletin on the ship one day. He said that the holiday would be observed and celebrated on December 24th, and that the Red Cross would supervise it. Adlin wrote that the woman's reaction was the, quote, screechy, noisy variety peculiar only to excited females. For this was the first encouragement our frustrated, morale-building souls had received. Such activity is more or less stifled on a ship whose capacity numbered 2,000 passengers. The Red Cross women didn't waste any time and immediately started making plans for the Christmas celebration. 
except there was a problem. Nobody had planned to have a celebration, so there were no extras. No decorations, no special food, and no presents. Those problems didn't stop the women, though. And Adeline wrote, This go-ahead for Christmas was manna to our work-starved ranks, and we were organized to the hilt within 24 hours. The women set about dividing themselves into groups to get things done. Some were in charge of preparing a Christmas program, some were in charge of music, some were in charge of decorating, and some were in charge of figuring out gifts for the GIs. Adlin, being an interior decorator, was the chairman of decorations. She and her team went to the supply captain, a man nicknamed Wimpy, to see what he had in his inventory. The storage room had been packed with supplies needed to feed the 2,000 people aboard the ship during the long journey, and Christmas decorations, or any decoration for that matter, hadn't exactly been at the top of the priority list. After much searching and snooping, Adeline and her team managed to find 25 packages of crepe paper in orange, yellow, and purple. She said the paper would have been perfect if they'd been decorating for Easter. They also found 16 yards of red cheesecloth, and at their last port of call, at the 11th hour, they were able to smuggle two trees on board. They continued their searching of the ship and found a supply of mimeograph paper and quart-sized bottles of something called mercurochrome. I did not have a clue what mercurochrome was, so I looked it up. It turns out that mercurochrome was used as an antiseptic to treat minor wounds. It had dye in it and would stain the skin for weeks after it was applied. And yes, it did contain mercury, which is part of the reason it's no longer available in the United States. Okay, back to our story. The women needed a place to work, so they commandeered the mess hall, which didn't make the men who usually went in there to play cards very happy. But it was for a good cause, right? One comment Adeline made that I loved was that Christmas is a great leveler of rank. It seemed the officers enjoyed watching the holiday decorating unfold just as much as those men they were in charge of. The women used the mimeograph paper to make hundreds of three-sided bells that they hung across the mess hall and then used the mercurochrome to dye even more paper red and then they cut thousands of stars of all sizes from it. She said their hands were permanently stained from that endeavor. Next, the woman wanted to decorate the tables, but Mac, who was the steward in charge of the mess hall, put his foot down at that one. He told them it wasn't a hotel and he didn't want anything as sissy as tablecloths in his mess hall. So, what did the women do? They went straight to the captain because he outranked Mac and pled their case. And the captain agreed to the tablecloths. The women covered the tables in white sheets and then sprinkled more red stars across them. Each table had a metal Christmas tree cut from used number 10 cans they found in the kitchen. Not only were their hands stained red, but they were cut up and shredded from making the metal trees. She said if you sat at the right angle, you'd even see the can label stating that there used to be powdered eggs inside. Of all their decorations, though, Adeline's favorite was the stuffed choir boys around the tree that they made from sheets and cotton, and wearing bathrobes. Each of the little stuffed choir boys held a songbook with Christmas carol lyrics painted on the outside. Christmas Eve arrived, and the women divided themselves up among the men and said they tried to pinch hit and act as substitutes for the mothers and wives the men couldn't sit with at the Christmas dinner table that year. The expressions on the men's faces when they stepped into the mess hall that day were proof that they'd succeeded in making Christmas magical. Even Mac, the man who didn't want tablecloths, 
came around to their cause and made an extra special meal of turkey stuffing, two kinds of potatoes, celery, olives, and fruit cocktail. For dessert, they all got mince pie, and for the first time ever, the captain came down and ate with the troops. Following dinner, they had a program filled with talent from both the men and women on board, and they sang Christmas carols together to their heart's content. In Adlin's words, she said, As we Red Cross girls tucked ourselves into our rocking bunks that night, not one remembered that we'd received not a present that day. Rather, we had all acquired a possession of another sort, a brand new spirit of Christmas, bound around with an earnest prayer in all our hearts that one day soon the bells could ring out, and all humanity would know, peace on earth, goodwill among men. For my advertisement today, I decided to stick with something to go along with the holidays. On page 5 of the Kansas City Star we used earlier, there are many, many advertisements for Christmas dinners at restaurants around town. For example, you could eat at the Congress restaurant. Christmas dinner there consisted of turkey, your choice of soup flavors, oyster dressing, and cranberry sauce. Or you could choose filet mignon instead of turkey, or even fried chicken and prime rib if either of those was your preference. They were also serving candied yams and potatoes and asparagus and peas and salad and hot rolls and, of course, pie with ice cream. A nationally known organist, Bill Campbell, would be on hand to entertain dinner guests. So how much would a huge dinner and entertainment like that set you back in 1944? $1.50. If that was a little too much for your budget, you could always eat Christmas dinner at the Egyptian Room and have ham, candied potatoes, corn, beets, hot rolls, and tea or coffee. That smaller yet still filling meal was only 75 cents. Friends, no matter how you did or didn't celebrate Christmas this year, I hope you were able to find peace and share the day with family, even if that meant you had to do it via video conferencing. It has been a very trying year all across the world, and as 2020 draws to a close, I hope you all have an abundance of happiness. Join me this Thursday for a new mini episode and then on Monday, a whole new year, we'll have another full episode. Talk to you later.